0: Today, we're going to talk about something that everyone has to deal with, and that's the anxiety that goes with our way of life and generally sort of the challenge to our mental well-being and our relationships.
1: Uh, I'm already freaking out.
0: Is this episode concept making you anxious? (laughs) Totally. Do you feel like you have more emotional distress as an entrepreneur than you did when You had a more regular job?
1: I think I was stressed out about different things. You know, I'm generally a stressed person, maybe not from the outside, but I'm always worrying about something. But I'm also the kind of person that doesn't mind thinking about these problems and challenges. It's just kind of in my nature, you know, to shelve a bunch of this stuff and be able to think about it all at the same time. So, do I feel like I was more or less stressed out when I had a job? Honestly, I might've been more stressed out because I was less happy with my situation. Right. Once I started a company, uh, some of those worries went away, like being able to control my future and income and things like that. But it comes with a new responsibility. You know, now got a bunch of people that you're responsible for. You got a company, you got revenue, blah, blah, blah.
0: Right, there's like an existential quality to it. Like you're in charge of it existing, not only for yourself and your family, but for the others that you have to make sure that they make a living as well. So that can bring a lot of added stress. And today's guest's perspective on this is really straightforward and refreshing. It's basically your business, You know, whether you have this fantasy about processes and scale or whatever, ultimately, it depends on you. Your business activities depend on you being healthy. And the reality is, is that many of us aren't taking enough time to care for ourselves. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Today's guest, Sherry Walling, is a clinical psychologist, so she has expertise in diagnosing and treating mental illness. She's worked with people in some pretty high-intensity jobs, including those in the military and emergency services and ER physicians and so on, but lately she's turned her efforts to, I think it's fair to say, another high-intensity career path, and that's the listeners of this show. That's you and me, boss man, on occasion, high-intensity entrepreneurs. (laughs) On occasion. She's the host of a great podcast called Zen Founder, and recently she released a book called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together: How to Run Your Business Without Letting It Run You. And by the way, we'll bring up Rob, her husband, often in this interview, and he is the founder of Drip and Startups for the Rest of Us podcast, so just a heads up on that. So I started out by asking Sherry about the stresses entrepreneurs face that differ from those in more regular and consistent nine-to-five jobs.
2: I think there's an identity difference. And when you have a job, even a job that you really like, a job that you care a lot about, there's still an element of going and ending and and coming home and sort of these transitions between starting and stopping. I think for an entrepreneur, those don't really exist, not just in the day, but in the amount of energy that you're spending thinking about your business, the amount of identification that you feel with your business. I mean, your, your business is you. You are your business. They're very intertwined for a lot of founders.
0: You mentioned that you worry about that. What worries you about it?
2: Anytime that we put the full weight of our self on some other entity. I think we make ourselves unnecessarily vulnerable. A quick example, my husband is an entrepreneur, Rob Walling, and he back in the day had this little business called Hittail. And it was an SEO keyword tool. And it got, at one point, we thought like pretty much decimated by a change that Google made. In its practices, and so like from one day to the next, we went from successful entrepreneurial family to oh crap, we might not even have like real business anymore, and that's of course stressful from a financial perspective, from a what do you do with your life perspective. But if you don't have other parts of your life that say hey, this is going to potentially fail, but I still have other things that matter to me, and I still believe that my life is valuable and that I have meaning and purpose as a human being separate from my business. I think that's the thing that worries me when the two become overly intertwined.
0: You right. remember the basic values of an entrepreneur, freedom, ingenuity, adventure, and meaning. Notice that words like money, success, and accolades aren't mentioned. I've been thinking a lot about these things lately, and I don't know that money ha- doesn't have anything to do with it. Let me say this. I do believe that the first four, freedom, ingenuity, adventure, and meaning are way more important to me. But for some reason, like the other stuff can get me, bring me down, even when I might have the other things.
2: Yes. I mean, many of us become entrepreneurs because of the opportunity to make money. But there are probably easier ways for smart people to make money than to go through the grind of starting a business. Maybe not, but maybe. I just think it's, it's a secondary motivator. And those big, deep values of what kind of life do I want to have? How do I want to spend my time? And do I want to have control over that? Those, I think, are the primary motivators that lead someone to step off a well-trodden, often very accessible, lucrative path and stop doing the kind of work that was laid out for them you know, from the beginning of their lives to do something totally different and to make their own thing. What contributes to that moment? That's what I'm interested in. Because yes, money is part of it. But I don't think it's the primary motivator for entrepreneurship.
0: You're right. Being an entrepreneur is brutal on your mental health. Really? Really? Does it have to be?
2: <laughs> I don't think it has to be. I think it, it can be, and that's you
0: cite studies of us getting sick more. Like it's it's pretty grim when I get in here.
2: It's not for the faint of heart.
0: I thought that I was making a like a sort of a thoughtful decision, getting out of the cubicle, getting out of this horrible organizational man sort of nineteen eighty four setup, and now all of a sudden I'm I'm free. But you're pointing out something that definitely I've noticed you know, here and there around the community is it does seem to have its own particular challenges on mental health.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there's no escaping hard things and we can stay in the cubicle or leave the cubicle. We're going to have our own struggles. And I think the point of the book is to say, hey, I know we're all living the dream, wink, wink, but let's be honest about how hard this can be and how lonely it can be, and how painful it is when your ideas fail, or people don't like them, or people say mean things about you on Twitter, or any number of things that happen when you put yourself out there in such a deep and important way.
0: Yeah, you mentioned this idea of isolation. There was this moment in the book, it was a man in a kitchen kind of going crazy about a project, and he felt like no one understood. And I think, for me, I related to it in this way that I've had moments in my life where I simultaneously was, I think this is the identification part you were talking about. Like I really cared about something that got messed up and I felt really isolated that no one cared as much as me. And I also sort of felt dumb to insist that other people care, you know, because how could they possibly, and it's just a business, but I couldn't help myself from just being devastated and alone, you know, for that moment.
2: You put so much of yourself into the details of the business. And yeah, no one spends as much time thinking about it as you do. Nobody spends as much time planning out you know, what graphics you're going to use to promote what thing right. in what order. <laughs> that all lives in your head.
0: You mentioned one of the traits that entrepreneurs often have is a technical term in psychology called writing a new life schema. I was hoping you could describe a little bit what's the background of that idea and why is it important to entrepreneurship?
2: Yeah, the idea of writing a schema is probably much, much older than the field of psychology. I think it's more really of a philosophical term, but it's the sense in which you're the author of your own life. And the schemas from a psychological perspective are the thoughts or the assumptions that guide how we are in the world. And as a founder, you're assuming or you're believing that you will be able to meet your livelihood or or meet your needs with your own ingenuity. And that assumption, that way of believing, that way of seeing yourself and your power in the world, I think is a really cool thing about what it means to be an entrepreneur.
0: One thing that struck me was the amount of talk about productivity in the book. I didn't expect that. And it certainly resonated with me. Part of me wonders, are we playing with fire? Because I kind of walked away from the book thinking I, I got to implement some of these things and is that part of the disease there <laughs> you know what I'm saying like yes am I on my hamster wheel there thinking like oh yeah now that I read this book I'm gonna be super more productive <laughs> like
2: <laughs> right right but it's totally not a productivity book I think one of the reasons that it's so prominent in the book is because it's one of the things that people most talk with me about like oh, you're a psychologist. You understand how the mind works. Like, how can I get more done faster? And (laughs) if you like kind of look through what we say about productivity, it's about being kind to yourself. So we have this whole section about procrastination and why you procrastinate and what to do about that. And, but the whole premise of the conversation is like, chill, give yourself a break, be kind. Like the more self-critical you are, the worse your productivity situation is going to be. So you have to kind of stop that critical voice before you can really get down to getting work done.
0: There's also part of me that read into it, like if you've chosen to be an entrepreneur, if you are one naturally, that you need to have goals in order to be healthy.
2: Yeah, one of the things that we know helps prevent people from getting burnt out is to have clearly identifiable goals. Goals are helpful. They help us structure our days. They also help us know like when we're winning. So goals are great, but like the most important part of goals is like celebrating when they're accomplished. So I think having those benchmarks for yourself is a really helpful kind of mental health way to structure what you're doing in your work because growth is sort of infinite or more customers is infinite. But having these really specific like these are the things that I want to accomplish in this amount of time. And you won't always get there, so it's okay. But having benchmarks where you can say, okay, done, check. I accomplished something. I'm going to celebrate it. Taking the wife out to dinner, whatever I'm going to do to mark this accomplishment is really important from a mental health perspective. I think the thing that I would love for entrepreneurs to feel more empowered to do is to really be mindful about the goals that are most important to them. And I think you know, there's a lot of like celebrity entrepreneurs and, and they have contributed a lot in terms of inspiration and in some cases, really practical ideas. But I think we all do ourselves a disservice when we hold up these, you know, sort of Gary V. folks as the standards of entrepreneurship, because that's not what most of us are going to get done in our lives. And so to recalibrate our goals, to match what our values really are is I think something that's super important to the sustainability of entrepreneurship over the course of our lives.
0: Do you have a profitable Facebook ads campaign? What happens when you try to increase the budget? Your return on investment drops dramatically, right? That's because scaling Facebook ads is the hardest part of the game, but it's also the most profitable. Unfortunately, it's not as easy as just doubling your budget and watching your profits double. It's a lot of hard strategic work And frankly, it's a full-time job. Today's sponsor, Growth Ninja, is a performance-based Facebook ads agency that specializes in scaling campaigns, helping them go from $500 per day in spend to $5,000 per day while maintaining and improving your ROI. If you want to scale your campaigns dramatically while keeping your return on investment consistent and growing, go check out growthninja.com today. Let them know the TMBA podcast sent you. You mentioned that one of your goals is to normalize therapy. What would that mean?
2: I really feel like it's important for people to have a sounding board and for people to have not only a good friend, but someone who is well-trained to listen to things that you don't necessarily hear. Therapists are amazing at spotting patterns, at picking up the meaning behind the words. And especially for founders, especially for solopreneurs, people who are doing this on their own, I would like love for every founder to have a therapist sort of on call for the times when the thoughts rattling around inside of your head, you can't get any traction on. And you just need some outside support and ideas and way of seeing.
0: Do you think that there's a logistical cost or is there a stigma against it? What is the reason you know people aren't doing this?
2: Yeah, I think all of us are still kind of contending with not liking our own weakness or our own fallibility. I think that, you know, therapy has this longstanding stigma of depending on where you come from either you know something that's for quote unquote crazy people or something that is not a legitimate form of science or you know there's all kinds of angles from which you can poke holes in the practice of therapy and that's unfortunate because for whatever flaws the field has it does have deep expertise in human connection and in listening well and helping people gain new insight
0: You write at one time, I was willing to sacrifice anything to reach my career goals. This is like, uh, I think, a pretty common thing I've seen. And you said, in in retrospect, I very nearly sacrificed everything. And you mentioned your family, your marriage, your relationship with your child, and of course, your emotional health. So what is it that you you
2: didn't see at the time? Yeah, so this was the year that I had finished my PhD and was doing my internship or my residency year. So I was married to Rob and we'd been married for seven or eight years at that point. And we had our first son who was at that time about a year, a year and a half old. We moved from Southern California to New Haven, Connecticut, where I was at the Yale University School of Medicine. And it was sort of this amazing opportunity. And I was just so focused on, these are the things I need to get done these are the papers I need to write. These are the people I need to meet. These are the things I need to do on the grind of I'm building this research career as a social scientist, and I'm going to be, you know, a famous research psychologist. And it wasn't ever that I made these conscious trades. It wasn't ever that I said, my husband is not important to me, or my child is not important to me, or my body, my physical care is not important to me. It was that I was so heads down in all of the things that I wanted to accomplish that I, I forgot about investing in those other parts of my life. And I think that's really easy to do. It becomes this gradual slide.
0: How do you realize that you've been making those unconscious trade-offs?
2: I think one of the fastest places most of us see it is in our relationships with a significant other where... There's many resentments that build up over time where it never feels like there's time or energy to really flesh those out or to really reconnect in an effective way. People talk about it, we've just drifted apart or it's not how it used to be. And those are not unusual sentiments to have from time to time in a relationship. But I do feel like when we are focusing on something so, so hard with so much of ourselves that that shift away from our relationships is one of the first things to go. And
0: Well, I must quote, we couldn't solve the problem of shared custody. So you open the book with this line, and it seems to me that you're implying that you were just one step away from a divorce.
2: Yeah, we were kind of in the place of talking about it, where it kind of felt like there's not a viable path forward. This is the the real story is that we got to the point of having a conversation about how are we going to tell our friends that we're going to split up. And we could not think about a way to explain it to our friends in a way that they would think it was a good idea. (laughs) And it was that conversation that we're like, hmm, if we can't can't convince the people that love us that this is the right thing for us, maybe it's not the right thing. So... (laughs) It's a little bit of a long way to answer your question, but one of the things that we have done is to really make sure that we have good friendships, both individually and as a couple. Because I think when you get to a point in your relationship where the glue doesn't feel quite as strong as it needs to be, then there's other people that can kind of help hold you together for a little while. Other people can be glue for you.
0: One of the things I was thinking of when you were talking about like normalizing therapeutic relationships, and and now you're talking about A community structure, a lot of people who listen to this show have foregone a lot of that and have moved around every few years or travel very, very frequently or maybe don't maintain a home base. How can those people go about installing this sort of therapeutic furniture in their lives?
2: You know, I think that that's more possible now than it's been before, that there are traditional therapists who now are practicing online in you know in ways that that's an accessible option and even beyond that as you well know you're a community creator there are ways for nomads and folks who don't you know have the 2.3 kids and white picket fence to really form meaningful relationships with like-minded folks who might be living across the world
0: and you're doing something like this too now yeah
2: i do i i talk with founders all over the world which has been a really fun part of my job
0: there was this uh Story that felt really empowering to me. It was when Rob went on a retreat and he wrote down all these things that he just like couldn't stand in his life anymore, and he's like going to flush them down the toilet. And then he comes back, and one of those things he can't flush down the toilet because it's his kids at night.
2: Yeah, that, that is discouraged.
0: Because <laughs> there is this kind of idea, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you just like I'm only going to do what I want to do, but there's always something that you're responsible for that you have to do. So what's your strategy for or what's the strategy you could recommend for people you might do that empowering exercise and then realize, hey, there's a couple things on here that I gotta keep around?
2: Yeah, we talk about in the book both emotion-focused coping and problem-focused coping. So problem-focused coping is something that's that's hard and bumming you out, but you really take the time to kind of problem solve, like how can I get rid of this? How can I outsource this? What do I need to do to not have this be such a drain on my energy. But emotion focused coping is more about how do I deal with the hard feelings about the hard things that I can't do anything about. And you know, those are things like chronic illness, or someone gets cancer, or you have a kid who's difficult to deal with, or you know, those are the parts of our lives where we don't always get to pick, we don't always get to control the challenges that we take on. And I think that's where having a set of things that bring you joy, bring you comfort, are fun for you, whether that's yoga or running or bike riding or visiting museums or having long conversations with friends. We have to have parts of our life that offset the struggle because the struggle is inevitable.
0: What are some of the other strategies that you see working for entrepreneurs? We mentioned also this concept of retreats
2: Yeah, retreats are one. That's a really important practice, and that's taking a couple days, a couple times a year ideally, and really spending time thinking through goals, big picture. This is part of your business. This is not like a time out from your business, but it's time to step out of the day-to-day and really think about bigger picture questions, and both Rob and I have done this for years and found it to be extremely valuable. I often will begin a retreat by doing a review of the last year or the last six months, whatever the last retreat point was, and looking at like the high points and the low points. Like what are the things that I really am proud of and satisfied by? What are the things that have brought me the most joy? And then looking at the things that really are zapping my energy. And incidentally, this is a practice that I do every day. Just High low of the day. It's a really simple like journaling practice for the you know the professional working parent who's hustling a lot. It's a great way to have a journaling practice that doesn't require a lot of time, which is a- another helpful thing.
0: What have been like some perennial energy zappers for you?
2: I think they change over time.
0: Pull out the journal.
2: I know. <laughs>
0: Let's just read them out.
2: Steer <laughs> <laughs> <Dear> diary. Dan. <laughs> I'll be honest, like we've just had a lot of like family challenges in the last year. So my lows are often like had difficult meeting with child school teacher or having trouble getting child in to see specialist or website broken or, you know, there are things that are (laughs) (laughs) just it's that sense of when the wind's knocked out of you a little bit. And we all have those in our day-to-day life. But I think keeping track of them can be really helpful because, again, sometimes we can problem-solve around them. Sometimes we can't. And when we can't problem-solve around them, then we know we need a little bit more support in our lives or a little bit more joy, a little bit more play.
0: There's a couple of business opportunities that peek around the corners on the pages of your book. And one is that there's a guy, Greg, and he got turned on to how valuable mental health practices and therapy can be. And so he felt that there was no better way to boost his team's productivity than to ensure that his staff looks after their mental health as well.
2: I'm seeing this more and more in small teams, that there's this awareness that when people are not doing well, that affects the company's bottom line. It also affects the relationships on the team. So at least in the United States, depression is the number one cause of missed work really yeah mental health problems are very expensive because they take a long time to treat and they can be often a slow creep so you're losing motivation you're losing energy you're losing relationship connections and then you know potentially you reach a breaking point i really need like time away and treatment and can be quite a long time to really bounce back from a serious episode of depression, for example. So thankfully, I think people are kind of getting wise to the need for prevention. So it's so much easier to make mental health care accessible early rather than late. So if you get people who are practicing good mental hygiene, we call it, (sighs) and they're going to do better at work. And then, you know, they won't be out for three months.
0: What's good mental hygiene? What What is a basic, you know, brush your teeth, floss your teeth twice a day regimen look like in terms of mental health?
2: It's very, it sounds very kindergarten, but it's like, eat well, sleep well, move your body 30 minutes, three times a week at minimum, pay attention to how you think about yourself, the sort of level of critical voices that are in your head cultivate relationships with people who are non-abusive and not critical. And I think when we think about mental hygiene at work, it usually means some level of, you know, scheduling flexibility. It means management and team leads that are well-trained to be motivating and supportive. So it means creating a culture within your business that is human
0: it's interesting because so many of us have a culture that's like decidedly not human nowadays. It's text going back and forth. It's chatting, you know, it's maybe a Skype here and there. And I wonder if there's like even an enhanced need for this kind of thing in, in this kind of digitized culture where we're disconnected from so many of these sort of cornerstone social contact things that used to drive for many people still drive business relationships but in the sort of internet startup space a lot of us we don't have that we're just sort of sitting behind a screen.
2: Yeah, and I think distributed teams are difficult to do well for that reason. There's there's not that easy, you know, 1970s conversation around the water cooler where people are just like, "Oh, so, Jim, how was the weekend?" But those <laughs> those relationships are important. They are. When you think about kind of the network of your social life, there's your, you know, your nuclear family, and then your close family and friends. And then you've got this sort of third circle out. And those are often like the work people. And when we don't cultivate that level of, you know, kind of casual, but supportive, hey, we work together, we, we have similar interests or similar experiences. I think there's something really lost in our level of kind of social attachment. Our brains read empathy a lot through body language. So you might hear tiredness in someone's voice if you're on a voice call, but there's a lot of data that we miss about each other when we don't see each other's faces. I'm a big advocate for having face-to-face meetings, even if they're through screens.
0: I think one of the things that you make a strong case for in the book that is maybe a fantasy that a lot of us might have a fantasy of the opposite. So you make the case that you are your business and that has its dangers but it's also you know implied in that is you have to keep yourself healthy and that's like your biggest opportunity in terms of having a healthy business. And I think a lot of us have this idea that I oh, know I'm not my business it's scaled, you know, <laughs> or something. Yeah. There's processes and you kind of like cut the shit. You kind of like come right, you don't even deal with any of that. You come straight in and you're like, look, you're your business. That's the deal you identify with it, live with it, and here's the implication of that.
2: And do it well.
0: I mean, I really walked away feeling like your belief is that this is where it all starts. Like strong mental health is gonna to lead to a strong business or a strong entrepreneurial experience might be a better way to say it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great summary of my book, Dan. Thank you.
0: Well, I can be your hype man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're totally. What are you doing later?
0: <laughs> can I um, ask you about another topic? Sure. I would like to ask you about how you wrote the book. So when you knew you wanted to write a book... How did you do it? Because I think a lot of people want to write a book, but it's this mysterious thing.
2: It's been on my to-do list for like four years.
0: As it has for most of us.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I'm right there with, with everyone else. <laughs> there were a couple things that were important. You know, people talk about this, but like I just had to get in a rhythm of writing and I carved out like 9.30 to 11.30, Monday, Wednesday, Friday mornings on my calendar. And I also had a writing helper who helps me with editing and then basically sort of busted my booty every week if I didn't have a new draft for her. So I had accountability and somebody who was helping me craft my thoughts and that was really helpful. The other thing I think I'll say is that I started the book last January and the end of January, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. My brother got very sick. We had this just series of like, crazy stressful things happen. And I think it actually really doubled down on my motivation to write the book because I kind of felt like my world is going a little bit crazy. I need to have some rhythm of something that I'm making that's a little bit in defiance of the nuttiness that's happening around me.
0: It's interesting because there's a moment in in the book that you describe like kind of like your life is legit going to shit. Yeah. That's what's going on. And you clung to your work as a time for yourself to keep your sanity and it's strange like i could imagine doing that even though it seems like that very work is the thing that may give me stress day to day
2: but it's still the thing that you choose and that you love and that you have some control over
0: right well thanks for doing this thanks for coming on the podcast sherry
2: hey my pleasure thank you
0: Big thanks to Sherry Walling for sharing her thoughts with us and and also for writing the book. I really enjoyed it. Ian it's called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Ish Together. How to Run Your Business Without Letting It Run You. You know, honestly, Ian, this isn't really stuff that occurred to me in my 20s. And I've been thinking a lot more about it as I get older. And, you know, we always talk about things like productivity, smart drugs, having positive relationships, building community, all this stuff. And like This is really coming back to the core of it, coming back to the source and saying, you're really important to your ventures. And why not make some time and put some real energy into taking care of yourself? And I think that for me, reading the book was an exercise in that is asking myself, do I have the systems in place to be properly taking care of myself? Because, you know, you can't just keep giving and giving and giving and giving without depleting yourself emotionally.
1: That's right. Yeah. You can't take care of other people unless you're taking care of yourself and, and you're steady in that. Very true. For sure. You have to take care of yourself first.
0: Ian, you know, I think the, the book is just a great starting point to start asking those questions if you haven't taken them seriously to date or you know, if you want to do more for yourself in terms of the support that you're giving yourself and, and how you can surround yourself with people that can help.
1: You know, Final thought on this, Dan, is I think in, in America, maybe I don't know about other parts of the world. There is a stigma that like you have to be broken to be fixed. But then I think there's also this idea that like you don't need to be broken. Like you can just improve yourself. And so, you know, this kind of work, you don't necessarily, I don't think need to be broken. Sure. Like it can just be a matter of, hey, I want to improve. I want to perform better. I want to be more responsible for the people around me. And I want to provide them with more support. And so, therefore, you know, I need to be my best me. Well said,
0: Ian. We'll leave it at that, and we'll post the show notes, the links to everything mentioned, plus the book at tropicalmba.com slash Sherry Walling. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.